Hey, happy uh, Labor Day weekend, kind of a punctuation point on summer. And how great was last Sunday at church? Did you guys have a good time last Sunday at church? Man, 10 people getting baptized, and we had a great party afterwards. And so to shout out to the champions of cornhole, Kyle and Joy Morris. You know the Morris family, they kind of dominate in the cornhole world. So give it up for Kyle and Joy, cornhole champions. Basketball champions, you know, the younger generation just tends to kind of make their way through. You know what I'm saying? The younger generation, let Evan Poland, Ben Williams, Jacob Cook, give it up for our three-on-three champions. We will not discuss who the runner-ups were. Let's just say they were slightly older or whatever in the, you know, the category that way. But we had a lot of fun. Face painting, balloon artists. Marv said we probably fed over 500 people last Sunday. How great is that? So give it up to Marv and the team of all you volunteers who helped. We ran out of virtually everything. We're sorry about that. It's like 100 more people than we had served the previous year, which is great problems to have. So thank you for your grace, patience, promise. We'll add more for next year. I heard a story about a family that was at soccer. They were over at the soccer fields kind of looked across the way and saw, I think they saw free food and a lot of fun, and then they just came over, and so we were feeding people from the soccer field, who knows. And if, you're, if you were here and it was your first time, I chatted with one family, it was their first time they'd ever come to Eagle, and they thought, do you guys do this all the time? This is so great, like our kids don't want to leave church. And so, and Indiana showed off with weather, right? God sent the cold front through at just the right time. Indiana was showing off all week. What a gorgeous week this week. Southern California climate's got nothing on us. Come on. It was just a great, great day, so thanks for being a part. To me, it was a picture of a window versus a mirror, right? We've been talking about Yancey's quote regarding the church, not to mirror back the culture you're in, but to, show, to look through a window into another way, another kingdom with another king. And you know what last Sunday was through the whole morning and then into the afternoon? It was a window into another way, the way... God's people were to be together, the way community and relationships and families and kids. I was so grateful. Kids, I hope you had a great day. I was so grateful that our children are growing up in an environment where their vision of spiritual community of Jesus' family is something like that. I'm just so grateful for that. And so thank you for everyone who was a part of that and contributed to it. So open up your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 1. We're beginning a new series that's going to take us from this morning all the way to Advent, end of November book of Nehemiah. So if you want a little personal journey, you can start reading through Nehemiah on your own, and then we're going to kind of take it section by section from now through the end of November. I'm going to start us off just asking us to reflect on a question. How would you assess the times in which we're living? What words might you attach as you kind of reflect on this moment in history that we find ourselves living in? How would you assess it? How do you read it? A moment where the technological capabilities today are in a category that they didn't even have a category for generations before. I was reading this week about an AI chatbot that you know a lot about, ChatGPT. This chatbot, did you know a couple of weeks ago, passed the bar exam at a local law school? Da da da. Yeah. A moment, right, in history we're living through right now where the emotional and mental health crisis of our nation has reached the point where the medical community has attached a phrase, deaths of despair, to this category of suicide, drug overdose, and chemical addictions. This is a moment that we're living in right now. A moment where the outbreak of physical violence at youth sports events, have you seen the feeds scrolling through? Or the most recent one was at a concert in, you know, Pittsburgh, like a country music concert at a stadium at the Portalettes, and these women just throwing down on each other. And then at youth sports events, you've got parents who are so out of control in fits of rage that here's what's become the new normal. Security guards are as necessary as referees. That's today. Or a moment we're living through now that we've got 73,000 people hanging out in the deserts of Nevada in an open field at a festival called Burning Man. You guys know about this? And then the rains came through and they're stuck in the mud of the Burning Man Festival. 
73,000 of them where the government officials said to them, shelter in place. <laughs> Good luck with that. Burning Man Festival. Look it up and see the core values of maybe what that festival's about and see if you feel the weight of this moment we're living in. A moment where the moral and spiritual landscape is shifting underneath our feet in a way that the term unprecedented would be appropriate for this moment. Just last weekend, New York Times editorial written by Dr. Jameson Webster, clinical psychologist. Here's the title of the editorial. Quote, I don't need to be a good person, neither do you. End quote. New York Times editorial last weekend. Clinical psychologist. Here's what she wrote in her article. Quote, listening to patients, it feels to me like we've reached a real pitch of delirium. Delirium means confusion regarding generalized advice, prescriptions, moral codes for behavior. We've, listen to this. We've forgotten that no one knows or has ever known what it really means to be an adult. Meaning, it really is your pleasure and your pleasure only. End quote. Or another headline that caught my attention, maybe for obvious reasons, when I see a headline like this hit my newsfeed, a Lutheran pastor in Minnesota sparked viral attention after leading her congregation in a, quote, sparkle creed during a recent worship service. Well, I had to click on that and read a little bit more what's going on here. The Edina Community Lutheran Church. Yes, the same Lutheran Church founded by Martin Luther, that Lutheran Church. Edina Community Lutheran Church in Minnesota led its congregants in a sparkle creed prayer earlier this summer where the pastor declared, quote, God is non-binary and that Jesus was raised by two dads, end quote. I thought about Martin Luther, you know, he was burned at the stake for his unwavering devotion to the gospel of Jesus. It's Martin Luther. He gave his life to declare that salvation is found in no one else. It's Christ alone through faith alone by grace alone. Luther gave himself for that. It was a different kind of creed than the sparkle creed. Here's our John Mark Comer. He was a pastor for many years in Portland, New York, and you could imagine the challenges in that environment. He's since become an author and doing some other things in writing. And so here's how he kind of summarizes our current moment. As the West secularized, the locust points of authority moved from God's scripture and the church to the enlightenment-based triad of science, research, and the university. The new seat of secular authority then redefined, follow this, what can be known, things like mathematics, biology, not things like right, wrong, and God. You following the train of thought here? In doing so, follow this, it conveniently moves subjects like religion and ethics into the domain of belief, by which most people mean opinion, feeling, or just wishful thinking. So church, these are the times in which we find ourselves living in. My question for you is, how do you assess these times, this moment in history. How do you assess it? How do you read it? You combine the cultural moment with our own personal moments. Many of you walking in, navigating some realities that you never fathom being in the middle of. Things going on at home, things going on with your health, things going on with the health of loved ones around you, things going on at work and finances and kids, and just this overwhelming sense of you can't see how you're going to get through what you're going through, coupled with then the cultural realities, mounted with the personal realities. What's your response? How are you responding? How would you assess these times? Is your response just to kind of shake your head and whisper a little profanity under your breath? Just, oh. Is your response to kind of throw up your hands in the air and just go, oh, it's just so overwhelming, it's so far out of control, what's the use? Is your response to kind of withdraw and retreat to your own little world and just kind of Netflix your way through the rest of your life 
What's your response? How do you assess and read this moment that we find ourselves living in? There is another way. We could respond, heeding the invitation of God to say, why don't you join Jesus in an arena called the kingdom of God? There's another way to respond. We join Jesus in an arena, call it the kingdom of God, and we're going to do this. We'll allow the intensity of our prayers to match the intensity of the moment we find ourselves living in. Because if we're honest, these are very intense times. Young people, all you children with us today, students, you're certainly very aware of it. These are intense times in which we're living. And there's a matching of the intensity of our praying to the intensity of the moment we find ourselves in. Jesus said in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. So here's the beginning of like matching the intensity of our prayers. Here's the starting point for intensity of prayers that match the intensity of the times is, God, we, we cannot do this on our own. Like we get, apart from you, we can't do anything. But we're not going to whiteboard our way out of this situation. Like the wisdom and creativity and ingenuity of humanity has, has reached its end point. It doesn't have solutions. That there's no new legislation we're going to pass. We're not legislating our way out of this. There's no election cycle that's going to end a certain way that's going to lead us into some kind of promised land. The institutions of man are at the end of themselves for what is needed in this moment. Church, what is needed in this moment is a movement of God that is so distinct that history would record it. This is what salvation history records these as, an awakening. That's what's needed at a moment like this. We are in a place, increasingly so, where we need an awakening by the Spirit of God poured out a presence of God upon the people of God that history would record and write down that a nation would turn. That's what's needed. You see, the starting point for this kind of awakening prayer, this start of... This kind of what starts stirring in the heart of God's people at the beginning when you start studying history and when people find themselves living in moments like we're living in right now. That there's this stirring of desperation and dependence on God. There's this stirring that's, that's kind of gripped by the gravity of the reality of the current moment. Are you tracking with me? You get gripped what later we're going to hear about is a, we're, get, we're given a baptism of honesty. We're gripped with reality, and it thrusts us to a place of desperation and dependence where we call out to God and say, God, you must come. You must rend the heavens, and you must come. No more compromise, no more drifting, no more casualness, no more foolishness, no more bending to the you-do-you mindset. You must come now. That's the posture. And there is a term for that kind of praying. The term, Asbury Professor David Thomas, attached to it, he calls it travailing prayer. It's this posture of prayer that says, God, without you, we've got nothing. And with you, we've got everything. It's this posture of crying out from the inmost place, gripped by the current reality, brought to the end of ourself. It's that place. It's called travailing prayer. Perhaps that's a new term to you. The word travail is rooted all through the scriptures, but in the New Testament, Paul uses it. He uses it to describe the travail of a, a woman in the labor of childbirth. Galatians 4.19, my dear children, for who I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed within you. That pains of childbirth is travail. Or it's the same word in Romans 8.26, where the Holy Spirit is groaning with wordless prayers. This is travail. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. That groaning is travail. So it's saying in light of the circumstances that we're surrounded with, personally and culturally, in light of the weight and gravity of current reality, 
God brings us to the end of ourselves where we fall on our face before him and we cry out from the depth of our being, God, you must come. You must come now. Not on our watch. We are not going to stand and watch our own heart, our own family, the younger generation. We're not going to stand. Gen Z, we have not, we're not standing for the label that's put on Gen Z. The label put on Gen Z is they're going to be marked as a generation of depression and death and anxiety. Say, no, not on our watch, they're not. We're standing in the gap with Gen Z to believe this generation God's raising up is going to be marked with life and joy and vitality. We're going to believe it. We're going to pray into it. We're going to travail to that end. Not on our watch that generation's not going to be lost and gone. That's travail. Church, are you feeling this? Something resonating in your heart with this? This is the moment in which we find ourselves. This is when you begin to get a baptism of honesty, when current reality begins to grab your heart and kind of shake you out of whatever casualness and distraction and life so full and fast and there's so much going on, and you just begin to look at reality, right? It's like, boom, right here. And then it thrusts you your face before God. God, you've got to come. Travail. You pray. This is the spring from which all of the movements of awakenings have flowed. This is the spring. The spring is travailing prayer. You can go all the way back to Exodus chapter 2 when the Israelites are 400 years in slavery. In Exodus chapter 2, it says they, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out to the Lord for help. That's travailing prayer right there. Groaning, crying out. Or 1 Samuel chapter 1, when Hannah, she's praying and the people around her think she's intoxicated with wine. She's praying so fervently, so intensely, they think she's, they think she's tanked. She's travailing. It's the prayer of the prophets. It's when Isaiah 62 says that we give God no rest. Isaiah, living through a time in an era where his, oh, he was gripped by a current reality. He said, God, we got to give you no rest. You must come, and you must come now. It's Elijah in 1 Kings 18. He gets to the top of Mount Carmel, and he gets down, and he puts his face between his knees. He kind of curls up into a ball. And he cries out for God to bring rain to end the drought of the land. It's that. He's travailing. Or it's the posture of Psalm 84, where Psalm 84 says, My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, what cry out for the living God? Is that travailing? All through the Psalms, by the way, if you trace this, all through the Psalms. Primarily the Psalms are travailing prayers and travailing songs. Because sometimes your travailing needs to be sung. Because there's lyrics and notes and musics and words that puts, a, puts words to this place in the end that calls out. That's what the Psalms are filled with. Or how about the prayer of Jesus marked with travail? Hebrews 5, 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, listen to this. He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. That's Jesus, the Son of God, while he's here. Prayers, petitions, loud cries, and tears. That seems to be a long way from casualness and drifting through the current moment we're living in. Jesus said, nope, not on his watch. Loud cries and tears. He's going to call. He's going to travail, which made sense then when the early church was launched off. Pentecost and Acts 2, they get into Acts 4, Peter and John are arrested, and the text says that the believers are all together, what are they doing? They're calling out to God, they're travailing with courage and boldness and power, they're asking God to step in and intervene, otherwise Peter and John are going to get executed. Acts chapter 4, it's the way the early church prayed. Now listen, they were thrust into their own grip of reality, which meant the Romans or the Jewish leaders or any other number of enemies coming for their physical life. So sometimes there are settings in which the circumstances are so obvious and overt that the only prayer that would make sense would be travail. It's why Dr. Thomas calls it integrity prayer. It's just in alignment with the reality in which you're in the middle of. So parentheses here, could this be why perhaps North American suburban life has not been the 
the best training ground for travailing. I remember years ago I was chatting with a, a guy who works a lot in really difficult parts of our city. He's in settings that, yeah, just really obvious, messy, difficult, lots of death, lots of despair, lots of poverty. It's just really hard where he's laboring. He's been there for a lot of years. And he looked at me one day and he said, Eric, you know what? You got just as, you got just as many issues in Zionsville as we got down here in the inner city. You just got more credit cards that cover it up. See, when, when, I, when I spent time with people in other parts of the world whose physical realities are a lot different than suburban North America, and when I've prayed with them, I didn't have a term for it, but now I do, what I experienced was travailing prayer. You get around the African church, you get around the Latin American church, and you gather around with some prayer meetings with them, what are you going to be a part of? You're going to be a part of travailing prayer. It just matches the moment in which they find themselves in. And I think that's what the early church was modeling. That's what the people of Jesus have been modeling for a lot of years when they get gripped with the gravity of current reality. It's what Paul prayed in Romans 15. At the end of Romans, Paul prays this. He's imploring the church at Rome. He's saying, hey, I need you to join me in this struggle. And here's what it says. Literally, Romans 15, 30 says, agonize with me by praying to God for me. (laughs) That's travailing prayer. Paul says, hey, Jump in, get in the arena, and travail as in the pains of childbirth with me. You see this? This travailing felt, it's this, it's this burden focused pressing posture. That's what it is. It's a burden, it's focused, it's, it's this pressing posture that's so gripped by the consequential moment in history we find ourselves in that it thrusts us to our face to cry out to the living God from a place of desperation and dependence. It's basically saying, God, we got no shot without you. You got to rend the heavens and come. We got no shot. And so, church, could it be, could it be for such a time as this? You know, we spent the whole month of August in consecration. I told you at the beginning of last month, I had no idea. I just, I had no idea where that was going. I just said, I just knew clearly this is what the Lord, he wants us to consecrate ourselves wholeheartedly to the person of Jesus for his purposes in this world with the power of heaven on our lives. That's all I knew. I knew to do, and hundreds of you all month long consecrating yourselves. Could it be, could it be that the step of consecration is tied right here to this? I think this this is as clear as I know how to say it. I think the the word from God to us as a body at this moment is something in this space. And I need you to help me sort this out together. Here's what I think it is. Something. Eagle Church, consecrate yourself wholeheartedly to the person of Jesus. Consecrate yourself wholeheartedly to him. And then step into the arena for the purpose of travailing prayer. And believe this. If you prioritize presence in the church, there'll be renewal in the nation. That's as clear as I know how to say it. This is our moment. How do you read it? How do you assess it? What labels would you attach to it? What's your response? This is as clear as I know how to say what I believe the people of God in the middle of this consequential moment in history. The people of God are to step forward fully consecrated to him. You're never going to stay in the arena of travailing prayer if you're not consecrated wholly to the Lord. It makes total sense to me now, right? Consecration is a precursor to travailing prayer. You're not staying in the arena, groaning out with loud cries and tears for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. You're not going to stay there unless what? Unless your heart is fully consecrated to him. And I believe that's what August has been for many and many of you. And now we step in this first week of September. I got no idea where this is going other than this. The clarity of call the congregation to travailing prayer. Issue the call. That a consecrated people will travail in prayer gripped by the consequential moment we find ourselves living in. By the way, that's personally. Some of you are dealing with some realities at home 
and you've been trying to figure it out in your own wisdom and strength, and part of the word of the Lord to you today is, you come to the end of yourself, you fall on your face before God and say, God, you must come or this thing's over. That. And then collectively, as a congregation, we unite together. What might God do with a few hundred people whose hearts are fully consecrated to him, who step into the arena with Jesus and say, you know what? Not on our watch. Enough's enough. We step into the arena with Jesus. Enough's enough. Enough compromise, enough drifting, enough foolishness, enough deaths of despair. Enough. We step forward and we say, Nope, gee, we join you. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Part the heavens and come down. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh among us. We cry out to you. Because if we'll prioritize presence in his church, the renewal we long for in our own hearts, the hearts of our families, and the heart of the nation will come. If this is resonating with any of you, I need an amen. I need an amen. Well, that was just the introduction to today's message, so I hope you're really settling yourself in here, right? There's your intro. Welcome to Eagle Church. If this is your first time here, it's been great having you, you know? Maybe this is your last time here. I don't know. It's like, gosh, these guys are intense. But here's what I believe. I believe the times in which we're living are intense. I just don't think it's time for casual. I'm as convicted as you. Listen, this isn't a guilt trip about prayer. Every single one of us knows our prayer life should be better and stronger and all that. Me too. Guilt is an ineffective motivator for prayer. This isn't a guilt trip. This is a call from God to step into the arena and to learn how to travail for a movement that history will say is an awakening. That's the call. And he's looking. He says, who's going to join me? And you see, this is where the book of Nehemiah starts. So Nehemiah begins in a setting where a guy who, listen, isn't a pastor, he's not a priest, he's not a prophet. He's a day laborer in the palace. He's cupbearer to the king. He's like, um, basically, he has to sample the food and drink so the king doesn't get poisoned. Tells you about the environment that he was in, right? Everybody wanted to kill Artaxerxes because he was leading the way he was leading. So they said, hey... Nehemiah, we trust you. It says a lot about his character and integrity. We trust that you will make sure the king's food and drink are safe. That was his like day labor. He's probably had some other jobs within the palace. This is Nehemiah, but he's an Israelite. He's a Hebrew who grew up in an environment that was 700 miles away from his homeland. So he grows up in a setting. Here's the map of where he grows up. He grows up in modern day. It's right on the border of Iraq and Iran today. It's called the Citadel of Susa. I'm going to read the text in just a minute. So here's the map. He's transported the exile of Babylon in 586 because here's the setting of the book of Nehemiah. Jeremiah the prophet has been speaking to the people of God, the Israelites, for 23 years. So 23 years, Jeremiah is standing, stepping, delivering God's word to God's people in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. For 23 years, the people of God basically have been saying to Jeremiah this, Jeremiah, you've gone off the spiritual deep end, you're way too intense for us, leave us alone, let us live the way we want to live. We want to do what we want to do, how we want to do it, we're fine. Go off and do your prophet thing somewhere else for 23 years. And then God says, that's it, I've had enough of the rebellion. God steps in and says, enough's enough. Enough of the foolishness, enough of the rebellion, enough of the casualness, enough of the mocking of my name, enough. God steps in. So how does he step in? He uproots 10,000 of the Israelites from the center of Jerusalem, and he moves them 700 miles into a, a kingdom known as Babylon, under the kingdom of Persia in modern-day Iran and Iraq. That's a picture. So Nehemiah, his parents get moved there. Nehemiah is born and raised in Babylon. He's 70 years is how long the people are there. So Nehemiah is born there, he's raised there. And he becomes a young adult, he begins serving in the palace, and then this, and that, by the way, that's known as the exile. So 586, that's the whole, that's the term exile. And now look at Nehemiah 1, verse 1. It says, in the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in your Bible you might want to write December, 
That'll be important for next week. December in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. So Susa, right on the border of Iran and Iraq today, you can go over to that territory of the world today and visit it. Hanani, one of my brothers, and you say, yes, one of his biological brothers, Hanani, is coming from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So they've been 700 miles in the middle of Iraq for around 70 years. That's how long they've been there. This has been a long while. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So you see what happens? His brother Hanani comes to Nehemiah while he's in the middle of the citadel Susa in the palace of the Persian king Artaxerxes and delivers current reality to him. And did you notice the response? Like, what's the comment about How does he describe the moment he finds himself in? The people are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall around the city broken down. Verse 3, broken down, gates burned with fire. So discouraged people, broken walls, burned gates. That's Nehemiah's cultural moment. Discouraged people, broken walls, burned gates. And what does he do? Church, look at what he does now. Verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and, what does it say? Wept for some, how long? Days? Not just hours, days. I mourned and fasted and what? Prayed before the God of heaven. Do you see this, church? So verse 4, weeping, fasting, praying. Nehemiah is one of the greatest examples of travailing prayer in the scriptures. Remember, not a pastor, not a priest, not a prophet. He's just average, everyday lay person who wasn't even raised in Jerusalem or in the nation of Israel. He was 700 miles in the middle of Iraq. That's where he was raised. Wow. And he gets gripped with current reality to the point where he falls on his face before God, weeping, fasting, praying for days. He's got the moment I find myself in, Open up the heavens and come. You've got to come. You've got to. The only shot we've got to get through what we're going through is you. This is what Nehemiah's posture. And so what we have here, and we're going to spend the remainder of our moments, we're just going to look. We get a little window into Nehemiah's travailing. That's from verse 5 through 11. It's obviously not the sum total of what he prayed. It's a summary of what he was praying. So we're going to look at three things from Nehemiah's travailing that give us a little guidance in our own travailing. And when we come back together tonight at 6.30, this is what we're going to do. We're going to work these muscles. Because the way you learn how to travail in prayer together is to travail in prayer together. And Nehemiah, God-centered, gripped with current reality, and shaped by Scripture. That's what you're going to see of his praying. Notice it's God-centered. Look at verse 5. He starts with, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. Well, that's a little longer than a prayer meeting we're calling tonight from 6.30 to 7.30. Hey, we've got to start somewhere. We've got to start there and work our muscles. We've got to work the muscle, right? For some of you to come tonight to worship and pray for 60 minutes will be the longest you've ever been in a worship and prayer setting. Great. Well, we'll start there. We'll work the muscle. And we've got to get to what? We've got to get to this point. We've got to get to the point where we've got calling out day and night, corporately and individually, and all the spaces in between. And I want you to notice how Nehemiah begins with this character of God. Like, he's just, the vision Nehemiah has for who he's talking to. You know your prayers are largely shaped by your understanding of who you're talking to? Nehemiah knew who he was talking to, and that shaped what he was talking about. He knew who he was talking to. So he's like, God, I know you're a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. I know you're prayer-hearing and prayer-answering. God, I know you're great and awesome. I know you have all the power and resources to get done whatever it is you want to get done. So no matter how broken that wall, no matter how burned those gates, no matter how discouraged the people, here's what I believe, that you and you alone can help your people get through what we're going through. That's it. That's travailing prayer right there. He's just calling out, saying, God, I know who you are, and I believe, and it shapes how he begins to pray. See, travailing prayer begins with God because it's really, we can't muster up travailing prayer. You can't like 
talk yourself or coach yourself into it. Travailing prayer is really prayer of the Holy Spirit. We become a mouthpiece for the wordless groans of the Holy Spirit in travailing prayer. That's what we're doing. We begin to like, try to put together what the Spirit of God is birthing and praying in us as His people. That's travailing prayer. It starts with God. It just kind of begins to take over our lives, and it begins to form and shape how we call out. So it forms how he expresses himself when he understands who he's expressing himself to. And then he's gripped. He's really honest about current reality. Look at verse 6, because as he's calling out, he says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. Now notice the switch in vocabulary. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. So he shifts this vocabulary from I to we. No blame shifting, no pointing the fingers, no just calling out, hey, I've been 700 miles over here, you guys are all messed up. Or If you guys wouldn't have been rebelling with, uh, under Jeremiah, if you would have just had some humility and some teachability under Jeremiah, we wouldn't have been here for the last 70 years. None of that. But Nehemiah found himself in circumstances largely as a result of the sin of others. Not a bad word for us today sometimes, right? Some of you are enduring some things right now in your own personal life, and what you're enduring is the ripple effect of the sin of others. Nehemiah is a good companion for you to pray with, because that's pretty much him. And he doesn't just try to point for you. He just simply says, you know what? I'm going to see things for what they are. I'm just going to call it for what it is. This is how we got to where we are, and we're going to take ownership of it. And that's part of travailing prayer. There's just this gripped with honesty about current reality. And this is where an elderly couple named Peggy and Christine Smith have entered salvation history. Peggy and Christine Smith, here's a picture of them. 84-year-old Peggy Smith on the left, and on the right, her 82-year-old sister Christine Smith. They're known as the Praying Sisters. Peggy is blind, and Christine struggles with crippling arthritis. And in 1948, so this is just on the backside of World War II, they're living on the Isle of Lewis off the northwest coast of Scotland. So if you know Scotland and you go northwest, there's a string of islands called the Hebrides Islands. This is the Hebridean revival. Scholars say the last, they believe the last known great awakening that has burst out in the Western world was in this area on the Isle of Lewis. Well, the backstory is it started with, the, they call these two the praying sisters. At 84 and 82, Peggy and Christine got so burdened about the current moment they found themselves in. They saw spiritual apathy all through their little island. They couldn't get anybody to come to church, and especially when they went to the younger generation. The younger generation was especially apathetic. Peggy said there wasn't one teenager in their whole church, and they were burdened about like the young men that were coming back from war and bearing all the scars, and many of the men struggling with all of the grief and the trauma of that, and they were just walking away from God in the droves. Peggy and Christine Smith, 84 and 82, said, not on our watch. So here's what they decided to do. They, called, they decided the two of them as sisters would start meeting on Tuesday and Friday night at 10 p.m. Now you're thinking, what do 84, why 10 p.m. on Tuesday and Friday night? One person said to me, well, they weren't sleeping, so they might as well. <laughs> Tuesday and Fridays at 10 p.m., they got together in a little cottage, and they began to travail in prayer. They began to call out, God, manifest your presence, because God comes where he's wanted. And they began to call out, God, we want you. We long for you. Our heart and flesh cry out for you. We're asking for you to turn the hearts of this generation. We're asking for you to do something with our sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters. We're asking you to turn this spirit of apathy into a hunger and a passion for your name. They began to travail. They said from 10 p.m., most times they gathered on Tuesday and Friday, they'd shut it down around 3 or 4 a.m. Jeez, can't wait till I call that kind of a prayer meeting with you. You guys are going to be super excited about that. So they did this for months and months and months, just the two of them. And then they began to sense some things shifting. They sensed that God's about to do something. This is the spring from which awakenings often come. It doesn't take a huge number. These start with two. So they went to their pastor Pastor McKay, who's leading a little local church on the Isle of Lewis, I was trying to picture that meeting when the pastor, you know, the two elderly women comes to pastor, 
we need, you to, we need you to start gathering people for this prayer meeting. We need you to start joining us. Would you come at 10 o'clock on Tuesday night and 10 o'clock on Friday night? And they knew he wasn't busy. 10 o'clock Tuesday, 10 o'clock. Pastor, would you come? Would you bring a couple elders with you? Would you just come and start praying with us? We think God's up to something. Credit to the pastor. He began to join them. He started joining with them on Tuesdays and Friday nights, and the elders started coming, and a few more leaders came around, and then some more things started to shift, and they sensed God was about to do something. And then these two elderly women said to the pastor, Pastor, we think you need to call like a, a revivalist type person. We need to organize like some evening meetings. God's about to do something. And so they organized 10 nights in 1949. They called Duncan Campbell. That's the gentleman in the middle. They called Duncan Campbell, who was in Scotland doing a bunch of traveling and preaching. And his schedule was packed. So picture Duncan Campbell getting the phone call from Pastor McKay. Duncan, I know you got a packed schedule. I know you got a lot going on. But I, we think you need to come. Could you come? Would you just come for like 10 days and just lead like 10, eve, 10 nights of revival meetings? We just, we've been praying here. We believe God's about to do something. We're not quite sure what's going on here. To Duncan Campbell's credit, he cleared his schedule and came. He was supposed to be there for 10 days. He stayed for three years. Three years. Because in Duncan Campbell's own words, when he stepped off the boat onto the Isle of Lewis, it was like the spiritual ground under his feet had completely shifted. The veil between this life and that. He, he knew he was walking in the middle of something. And Duncan Campbell said they began to have evening meetings in the church. And he said he would try to pronounce a benediction around 11 at night or midnight, and the people would have none of it. They wouldn't let him pronounce the benediction. It would go on 3, 4 in the morning. Duncan Campbell said he would walk the streets of the Isle of Lewis. He said there was a light on in every home. And inside the homes, it wasn't people gathering and chit-chatting. He said he would look inside the windows of the homes. It was moms and dads with their children on their knees in the center of their home crying out. He said everywhere he went. He said the teenagers began to come to him and say, did you hear what's going on in the barns on the outskirts of town and in the barns where the farmers had gathered? It was the grandfathers. The grandfathers weren't inside their barns tinkering with the tractors and bailing hay. They were on their knees before God, travailing in prayer, crying out everywhere. And the Spirit of God was manifest in such a way. God comes where he's wanted, church, and he was wanted there, and he poured out there in a way that spread all through the Hebrides Islands. You can read all about it. You can go online and read about the Hebridean revival. I share all that to share this quote. Duncan Campbell wrote this in reflection on the time. I put this quote in your notes. Let us be honest in the presence of our God and get right into the grips of reality. Have I a vision of our desperate need? Oh, for a baptism of honesty, for a gripping reality that will move us. That's what I was praying for for today, for all of us, my heart included. I think we need a baptism of the gripping reality that will move us from a place of apathy or frustration or indifference that would move us to travail in prayer for an awakening. Just like Nehemiah. Duncan Campbell's like the modern-day Nehemiah in the 1940s. Nehemiah's honesty produced like an agony in prayer. He got baptized into honesty when his brother Hanani said, here's your situation your parents are in. Broken walls, burned gates, discouraged people, all this stuff going on. You got to do something. And he was gripped with what's going on in his home country. He knew what it would take for Artaxerxes to let him go. He knew only God could do it. And so the intensity of his prayer began to match the intensity of the moment he found himself in. So he had a God-centeredness to his prayer, he was gripped with current reality. And then lastly, he was shaped by Scripture. Look at verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave me, he's praying. So he's reminding God about the instruction that he gave his servant Moses. He's quoting Deuteronomy 30. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Church, what does this tell you about Nehemiah's parents? Are you kidding me? How giant. I think one of the most underrated characters in the Bible is Nehemiah 1.1 when it says Nehemiah son of Hakaliah. I think Hakaliah is a spiritual giant. So how do I say that? Because Nehemiah grew up where? 
Where did he grow up? 700 miles from his promised land in the middle of Babylon. And his parents, they figured out a way to parent the children and raise them, not mirroring back the culture of Babylon to them. His parents gave him a window into another kingdom and another king. Wow, what a vision. Parents, what a vision for parenting. I'm challenged by that. Listen, mom and dad, I know it's as hard as it's ever been to raise up a generation in our current cultural moment. But this text says it may be difficult, but it is not impossible. Let's see to it. Let's be the Hakaliahs, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, that we might see the Nehemiahs grow up under our spiritual leadership that would step into a cultural moment and travail for an awakening. Whoa, what a vision for parenting, church. What a vision for parenting or grandparenting, grandparents. Here's your vision. Nehemiah is a spiritual giant. But his parents in the middle of Babylon said, huh, not the mirror, the window. Son, it's about another kingdom. It's about another king. And so God's word revealed God's character, gave him God's perspective, and that shaped and guided how he was praying. See, Nehemiah's hope wasn't in the circumstances of man. It was in the character and promises of God. So worship team, come on back up. Here's how we're going to close. I'm going to close by asking you the same question I asked you at the beginning. How do you assess the current moment we find ourselves living in? How do you read it? How do you assess it? What labels, what words would you attach to it? I put two words down as I reflected on it these past couple of weeks. Consequential and Babylonian. That's our current moment. I think we're more like Nehemiah 700 miles from where God wants us to. I think we're more in the middle of Babylon, Nehemiah-like, broken walls, burn gates, discouraged people. I think that's more the grip of honesty if we're really to look at it. I think that's where we are. And I think it's really consequential. I think there's a lot at stake. I think these are really intense times. I think it warrants our best. I don't think it's time to be casual. I don't think it's time to just kind of drift along. I don't think it's time to throw our arms up in the air and go, Shh, leave it to somebody else to figure all this jacked up mess out. Nope. I think when you look at the life of Nehemiah, I think when you look at the stream of salvation history, I think it's time for us, Eagle Church, to be the Peggy and Christine Smith. To step in. Two elderly women say, hey, not on their watch. They said the grandfathers on the outskirts of town, the barn, were calling out by name for the soldiers that were coming back from the field, just buried with scars from the war. Just can you, I mean, just all that that brought. And they were calling out by name. They would fall at the feet of Jesus. And then before Peggy and Christine died, they got to see their local church on the Isle of Lewis when they gathered for worship. It wasn't just the older generation that was saying, you can't shut this down. It was all those students and all those young people that had all that apathy before said, no, not on their watch. They began to step forward and they began to lead. And the storyline goes primarily through the younger generation did that revival spread all through the Hebrides. And so Eagle family, this is the call. The call this morning is to be consecrated wholeheartedly to the person of Jesus. To step into the arena for the purpose of travailing in prayer. Believing that if we'll prioritize presence in the church, we'll see renewal in the nation. That's the call. So how do you get real practical with this? What do I do with that? Tonight? Come out tonight. 6.30. We're going to... We're going to set up a bunch of chairs in the atrium. John's going to lead us in some songs, some songs that are like travailing in worship type songs. And we're going to work the muscles of learning how to travail in prayer together. And then next Sunday at 9.15, do you know that we've had for years and years a group of people praying at 9.15 on Sunday mornings? Do you know that? Many of you have been prayed for by name by a group of people on Sunday mornings at 9.15. Did you know that? This goes back years and years. We used to meet up in the prayer room, and even before that, the atrium, and then we've met down the conference room. And So the latest group are people like Stephen and Carrie Smith and Sarah Harris and Heidi Nakata and Barb Baxter and Marv Stutzman and 
and several of others of you have joined, but this core group, they've been from 9.15 to 9.45, they've been crying out to the Lord. They've been travailing in prayer. They've been our kind of Peggy and Christine Smith type. We're going to build on their foundation. So next Sunday at 9.15, here's what I ask. The prayer meeting is moving from the conference room. The conference room's not big enough for the prayer meeting, okay? It's moving right here, okay? So at 9.15, here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to set your clocks back and say, you know what? The gathering with the people of God to seek the presence of God, to begin to serve the purposes of God, it's not just 10 to 11.15 now. We're starting at 9.15, and we're starting right here. We're going to set up a bunch of little circles of chairs right through here, however many of you come, and we're going to pray from 9.15 to 9.45. We're going to call out to God. Because we really, really believe that without him, we've got nothing. That's what we really, really believe. We got no shot without him. You know what people who believe that they're desperate for God do? We pray. That's what we're going to do. And so I'm going to ask you, join us. Pastors will be here. Other ministry leaders will be here. I'm asking all of you, leaders, elders, small group leaders, all of you serving on Sunday morning, many of you serving in children's student ministries are kind of shifting around some pre-service responsibilities to try to free up as much of the time from 9.15 to 9.45. You might have to leave a little bit early. That's fine. But come in at 9.15, come in, come in here, and we're going to work this muscle together. That's not just next Sunday morning. That's next Sunday morning. That's it. This, is the new, this is the new step. We're going to be doing this every Sunday morning afterward. There's no like, well, when is this over? It's never over. When Jesus returns, parts the heavens, when he returns and blows the trumpets, that, when he calls us over, that's, that's when that part's over. But we're going to learn how to travail in prayer together, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to become not just a house of prayer for the nations by his grace, but by his grace, we're going to become a house of travailing prayer for the nations, for his glory, his presence in the church, and for renewal in the nation. Let's pray together. Lord, we feel the weight and the gravity of this consequential moment that you've placed us in. I just confess my own apathy at times, my own indifference, my own frustrations. I confess that I just want to stick my head in the sand at times and say, it's just too big, too hard, too messed up. Forgive me, oh God. Have mercy on me, oh God. And then have mercy on us as a body for just the times that we just neglected to be gripped a baptism of honesty would you bless us with that today by the power of the Holy Spirit give us a baptism of honesty right now grip our hearts and call us to travailing prayer prayer come Lord Jesus come spirit of the living God fall afresh without you we've got nothing and with you we've got everything in Jesus' name.